the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, so let's start. Uh, this is a really sad story. but oh, it's I thought terrible. It, uh, it really jumped out at me. It was kind of the headline story on the Today Show this morning as I was, as I was watching and uh, it was this tragic fire in the Bronx. And so uh, you start to read the numbers and you're like, oh, my goodness. But if you've ever been to New York, you know, there's just uh, in some areas of the city, including the Bronx, there's just enormous apartment buildings. Right. right? They're just right. enormous uh, buildings. And so you can understand how something like this happens. It says a fire in the Bronx apartment building leaves 19 dead, mm. including nine children. Oh, and investigators awful. have found that it was. Uh, a faulty space heater and the people whose apartment had the space heater, they left their door open, which created kind of a backdraft. Uh, and uh, that that is kind of what happened. But smoke inhalation and all of this. And, mm. and I don't want to get into the uh, the gory details, but you had sure. nine children die. Awful. And it, it, everyone on the scene said it was just a horrific thing. And Aubrey, you read these. I don't know. It doesn't make it any any better or any right. worse. But you when you read stories and it's like, oh, one person died, too. You're like, oh, man, that's tragic. But you could have it. To read a story of a fire in an apartment building and it killing 19 people, including nine children, is just uh, – it, it's its hard to get your mind around. Oh, it's its so devastating. And, and I, I mean, anytime – I don't know what – you know, adults are just as valuable as children. But when you think about young little kids, you just – there's just no way to wrap your mind around how terrible that is. Like mm-hmm. nine children dead is just absolutely devastating. And and the way, I mean, just, I don't know, you almost can't even go there just dying in a fire like that. You know, there was suffering, you know, there was fear. Like, it's just pretty terrible. Yeah, it is it is terrible. That's a good way to put it. You uh, heard from a lot of the people who were in the area. But uh, Aubrey, obviously the biggest thing is, is just the... Um, the tragedy of something like this, but mm-hmm. uh, it does remind us again of just the fragility of life. It reminds us again, doesn't it? That, um, that, that in the blink of an eye, in yeah, the, in the, right. as long as it takes for an apartment to catch on fire from a faulty space heater, everything can change. And I, and I do think while that's somewhat of a morbid thought for a Monday, it's also an important perspective for us to live with, right? That says, we're not promised anything. Anything can happen at any time, and so therefore, uh, we live with uh, we live with that sort of perspective of life. Is that helpful, or is that um, is that a difficult way to live for you? I mean, I uh, yes and no. I mean, I think there are, the reality is like I want to ignore this story, but we just can't. Like right. you know, you you can't turn your face away as much as you want to because there's real pain and real suffering in the world, and I. And I do think, you know, you never want to take someone else's tragedy and try to make it like, well, here's a life lesson for me. But mm-hmm, I do mm-hmm. think it is, like you said, it's a startling reminder. We have no idea what tomorrow will bring. That's right. We have That's no right. idea what this evening will bring. 
And so to spend as much time cherishing your loved ones as possible, speaking the things you need to say to them, you know, none, none of us can live as each, as if each day is our last, because that's, I think that's sort of an impossible task, but I, I do think to just have these reminders of like, life is precious, life is valuable. So let's, you know, show the people we love that we love them and soak up every moment we can. And, uh, you know, I, I think about, I have a friend who died really tragically in high school in a car wreck, and I'll never forget her dad saying at the funeral, our last conversation was me telling her how much I loved her. And he mm. said, we always ended, we got off the phone saying, I love you so much. We, when she left for school, I said, I love you so much. And that has always stuck with me because for him, he, I mean, he literally said at his daughter's funeral, I am so grateful for that moment. And that has always stuck with me. Like you have to just show love to your people because you're right. You, you just don't know. You don't know how things are going to end. It is true. I, I, on kind of a flip side of that, I remember talking to somebody, a friend of mine, uh, who's, uh, I think one of their parents, if I remember the story correctly, died somewhat suddenly, mm. uh, years ago. And I remember him saying, uh, one of his, um, one of the things he was really struggling with was him and his mom. Uh, I think it was his mom, might have been his dad, had gotten into an argument that morning. Mm. And you're just like, that's normal, right? That's yeah, a that normal happens. thing. And yeah, I don't think happens. you can allow that to cloud everything. But, uh, but Aubrey, the Bible does speak to us as Christ followers that we are supposed to live our lives with some sort of urgency, right? The book of James says, uh, our lives are a mist, right? Here today, gone tomorrow. And uh, it's this mm. urgency that I want to think about. And I think yeah. you make a great point. Let's not just use someone else's tragedy to like, you know, make a point. But uh, but there is a larger point here for us about um, urgency and therefore going, OK, I do know there's coming a day where these things won't be a reality, but they're a reality now. Yeah. And so the Bible tells me allow that to form how I live now. Right. Like I store up for myself treasures in heaven. Mm. I uh, I. Um, Treat today or tomorrow as if it is a gift. And I think with an eternal perspective going, okay, no, no, this isn't all that there is. Even though every day we wake up, it clearly feels like this is all that there is. Yeah. Uh, how, though? Here's the $64,000 oh, question, as I like to say. Question. How do you live with that? How do you even grow that perspective within yourself? Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is one of those things that is just a work of grace and a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so I think you can begin praying, Lord, would you give me an eternal perspective? I think obviously searching the scriptures and seeing how early followers of Jesus did have an eternal perspective, even while they lived on earth and, you know, made sure like their hands were to the plow because they mm -hmm. didn't know when the Lord was going to return. Or they didn't know when their life was going to end. And and remember, like most of these followers of Jesus had their life taken from them before it was like, quote unquote, the right time. Right. And and so I, I, I don't think this is something we can necessarily work up in our own. But to, yeah, ask the Holy Spirit to do it. And then, I you know, I think about a book like um, we had Lee Strobel on the show and he wrote his book Case for Heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, some of those the heaven industry can come across as a little cheesy, but I think a dependable book like that from a dependable guy mm. can at least begin to get your mind thinking about the future and, and eternality and that kind of thing. I, what would you say, Brian? Yeah, I think that's a great resource. I'd also point people to Randy Alcorn's book mm -hmm. called Heaven, yeah. uh, which I found great. It is the fine line that we walk because like you said, I can't wake up every day and be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die today. Mm -hmm. What's going to, what do I do? Like we have to go about our day-to-day -day business as if it's just our day-to-day 
day-to-day business, right? Mm-hmm. Like I got to get my kids ready for school. I got to do my job. I got to take care of chores or whatever else it might be. But at the same time, it, it does form in us a much larger perspective that says, okay, this could be anybody's last day. This not just my yes. own, this could be anybody's. Uh, and the most important question in everybody's life is, uh, what do they believe about Jesus? Do they know? And, and and so it becomes kind of, it forms a urgency and a priority level within us. Um, but it's hard because you also have to go about your day-to-day life. And so um, understanding the book of James telling us our life is a mist, could be here today, gone tomorrow, but yeah. that that's not our ultimate reality, I think is is helpful. So be praying for these families. What a tragic story out of New York City. Uh, yeah, just just a tragic story. Well, coming up next, Dr. Nicholas Piotrowski, academic dean and president of Indianapolis Theological Seminary. He wrote a new book called In All the Scriptures, The Three Contexts of Biblical Hermeneutics. We're excited to talk to Nicholas next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And uh, we have lots of goals here on The Common Good. We like to laugh a lot. We like to talk about what's going on in the news. But one of the things we want to help you with out there is how do I read the Bible? Like, what's the importance of the Bible? How do I understand what I'm reading in the Bible? And Uh, because we want you to be lovers of the Bible. We want you to be rooted in Scripture. And with that in mind, Aubrey and I are really excited to to be joined by the author of a new book called In All the Scriptures, The Three Contexts of Biblical Hermeneutics. He is the president and academic dean at Indianapolis Theological Seminary. His name is Dr. Nicholas Piotrowski. Nicholas, how are you doing today, man? I'm well. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Aubrey. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And before we jump into this book, and congratulations on it, it looks great. Before we do that, why don't you introduce yourself a little further to our audience so they can get to know you? Thank you. Well, uh, as you mentioned, I live here in Indianapolis, where I serve Indianapolis Theological Seminary. Uh, My wife's name is Cheryl. We have two boys, Silas and Andreas. I earn a master's degree at Reformed Theological Seminary. And like both of you, I am a weedy. I earned my PhD in New Testament from Wheaton College uh, a little less than, wow, a, a decade ago. <laughs> there you go. Time flies. Time flies. <laughs> well, we love having Wheaton people on the show. That's one of our favorite things. So glad that you're here with us today. And Nicholas, your book looks fantastic in all the scriptures, the three contexts of biblical hermeneutics. I am guessing we have some listeners right now who just heard that and are like, I have no idea what that book is about. Can you talk to us a little bit about, we'll talk about the book itself in a minute, but I just want you to explain to our listeners, what is biblical hermeneutics? Yeah, hermeneutics is is one of those words where uh, we hear it and we turn off because it sounds very technical, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, But it's actually really, really important. It's really just a fancy word to say, how do we interpret? How do we read? A lot of things are going on in our culture, in our mind, in our hearts when we read. And how do we take stock of that? I know we all learn to read in first and second grade, but the Bible is a very old book written in diverse genres and different people, different times in history. And so there's a little more work to be done. Anyone who's read the Bible knows this. It's a little more difficult than than other things we might read. And so this book, so hermeneutics is paying attention to how we read and what are some best practices so that we can get the message right and not basically read ourselves into the text of scripture, but really let the scriptures have their way with us Mm -hmm. and truly hear the voice of Jesus through the text. 
Ah, it's so good. I remember going to Wheaton, like he's like we said, we were all there, and hearing the term hermeneutics and be like, "Whoa!" Like I, I don't know what we're talking about, and and then having it explained to me was so important. Let's start with the negative side here, Nicholas. How do we know when we're getting this wrong? How do we know when we are reading ourselves into the text, or to ask it another way, like what does that even look like? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, sometimes, sometimes we don't know, and that's kind of the danger. So maybe to say, uh, what does it look like? We live in uh, in America today, uh, very individualistic, Western, you know, people throw around the word postmodern and existentialism and these kinds of things. Well, those are philosophical climates uh, that affect the air we breathe, as it were. So we can't not be affected by the philosophical climate. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy to read the Bible in Western, individualistic, postmodern, psychotherapeutic ways mm. but the bible was written by jewish men uh, over a thousand years before christ right at the time of christ in a different culture in a different setting and it's trying to accomplish different things than maybe what we are particularly concerned with in our cultural moment mm. and so we kind of have to travel I, I like to tell my students you have to travel in the uh, time machine of your imagination <laughs> back to the days of the prophets and the apostles and understand the scriptures on their term. Mm. And if we do, I believe we will have better application for our moment in history. That's not to say we ignore our cultural moment. To the contrary, we'll have more robust interpretations, interpretations with staying power that have truly fruitful and deep application in our time. That's great. And so, um, Nicholas, for just the average Bible reader, like I'm getting up in the morning, I'm doing my, you know, 15 minute Bible study. What are some just tips for me to get started doing hermeneutics in a way that might actually honor the text? Uh, great question. I, the, the subtitle of this book is the three contexts of hermeneutics, right? So pay attention to the literary context. When you wake up and you want to do your 15 minutes of reading, uh, don't just read one verse and, you know, meditate on it, memorize it or whatever. Alone, alone. Read before your verse. Read after your verse. If you can, you know, I would try to find even a little more time somewhere during the week. And let's say, for example, you're reading, I don't know, Ephesians. Read, read all of Ephesians in one city. Hmm. Chapter one through chapter six. And then... And then go back into those details and you'll see more of the connectedness across Ephesians. Mm. What I love to tell my students is, you know, uh, Paul did not write Ephesians 2.12. And they all gasp. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, let me finish. He wrote all of Ephesians. Yeah, that's good. He expected all of the Ephesian Christians to be present and for the entire text to be read to them out loud in one sitting. And then, you know, next week, maybe you read all of Mark and then you're getting bold. Next week, read all of Job in one <laughs> sitting. You will understand it so much better than ever before. So context, context, context. That's great. Yeah. And Nicholas, uh, we mentioned this, Aubrey and I are both pastors. And so mm -hmm. uh, we want to teach our people the text, but also teach our people how to handle the text. What's uh, What might be first step? Uh, your book sounds like a wonderful resource for that. But to the pastors who are listening out there, uh, what would you charge them with and how would you encourage them? Yeah. So this book was written for anybody who wants to read the Bible better. Anybody who wants to put in the effort to study and read the Bible better. That's that's the person for whom this book was written. Uh, anybody who has a high school degree should be able to handle it. 
know, it's not very complicated reading. And there's places where I define, uh, use words like hermeneutics. I go out of my way to define them carefully so the reader doesn't get lost. Um, so the book is also written then for anybody who wants to read the Bible better because they will teach it, right? So mm-hmm. as you mentioned, being pastors, you, it's not only preaching where, where teaching gets done, is it? Right. We teach when we counsel. We teach when we evangelize. We teach when we disciple. We're, we're always teaching. We're always, we're always, yeah. we, we read the Bible. We just have to pass it on. We have to say, I learned this, right? So whether it's conversations or more formal settings, um, uh, we're, we're always teaching the Bible. And of course, we want to therefore get the message right. If we're going to say, this is what God says, we want to be right about it. That's right. So without without uh, the embarrassment of shamefully plugging my own book, Brian, I would say, give my book. <laughs> but the short answer to your question is, the short answer to your question is, understand the scope of the whole. Mm. So I mentioned reading all of Mark or all of Ephesians or all of Job, but we also need to understand where Mark, Ephesians, and Job or whatever also fit into the larger biblical canon. Genesis to Revelation comprises one narrative, the narrative of what God is doing in history to glorify himself through the salvation of his people and the salvation of the world, really, to to redeem the whole cosmos at the end of the day, right? And so each book contributes to that larger narrative in some way. When we miss that, then that's when we start to atomize and start to shape the Bible into our own existential needs instead of letting the Bible reshape those existential needs. Mm. So understand the scope of the whole. That's good. That's really good. And um, Nicholas, for our listeners out there who are interested in finding more about you and more about your work and purchasing this book, um, where can they find and follow you? Uh, thanks. Um, most of my activity runs through the seminary. So uh, Indianapolis Theological Seminary website, which is indysem.org, I-N-D-Y-S-E-M.org, indysem.org. We have a blog, which is only posted once a month, so we don't overwhelm people. <laughs> uh, we have a faculty page where uh, you can link link there to uh, sermons I've preached and, of course, this book. Um, and that would be the best place to find me. That's awesome. The book, again, is in in all the scriptures, the three contexts of biblical hermeneutics. I'd really encourage you out there, go pick up this book, especially as we want to be people who handle the scriptures well, who read it well, who allow the scriptures to uh, define us instead of vice versa. Go pick up in all the scriptures. The author of that book is Dr. Nicholas uh, Piotrowski. Nicholas, this is really fun. Great to meet you, man. Hope the book does well. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you. It was an honor. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a Monday afternoon. The week is in front of us. Uh, but Aubrey, before we get past the weekend, yesterday was Sunday. What did you and I do on a Sunday? We do church. We, we are, do church. That's <clears throat> right. Yep. We are both pastors. We uh, we lead in churches, preach often. Uh, how was your church? Because uh, <laughs> my church feels really different right now because of yes. uh, Omicron or whatever yes. it's called. Yes. Uh, it, everything feels a little different. How about for you? I think combination of Omicron and the weather and mm. maybe people still being in sort of the holiday mode. I'm not sure. But our church was down by like two thirds. Like it yeah. was so empty on Sunday. And there was something a little fun about it, to be honest. Like we just sort of circled up and had a small church meeting. But it was bizarre. It was a little bizarre. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. 
It is. Uh, I, I'm glad to hear you be able to laugh about it and say it was kind of fun because I, I'm struggling with the <laughs> like. Being so, like, do you keep are. going? Right. <laughs> it is. Uh, so we had a congregational meeting at our church back uh, before Christmas when everything was feeling much more normal again, you know. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, guys, it feels like we have been through the ringer, like every church, like yeah. every business. Yeah. I said for the first time in like two years over the last couple months, and I gave them reasons for why I was saying this. I'm like, I feel like um, we have some wind in our sails. Like it's, mm. it's, you know, it's not full bore, but it feels like for the first time in this whole COVID life that we live in, everyone was like, yes, I totally feel. It was like this enjoyable thing. You go into the holidays now, and now we got this new variant. It feels like the sales got ripped away. <laughs> it's <laughs> so, it's so true. I mean, even Kevin, and he was being facetious, but he's like, Maybe we just close down for a while. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's so tempting it. to be like, where is everybody? But it's I, hard. I, oh, the tide will turn. I have to believe it. I, at least the people that I trust seem to think that this, uh, the, the wave of this variant will be short lived. So I'm, I'm hoping that that is true. And, uh, cause honestly, our church has been really, um, through these last two years has not had COVID problems at all. Yeah. Uh, like I could count on one hand the number of people I even know who have had it in any substantial wow. way. Wow. Uh, let alone hospitalized or died or whatever. Wow. In these last two weeks, I can't keep up with everybody. Oh, who's everyone had COVID has it. In our church. Yeah. And so yeah. it doesn't, it's not a surprise that our churches have been kind of empty, but you're just like, what is happening? Oh, we're back. Yeah. We had a, we had a big, like, kind of a min, like a programmatic thing that was supposed to kick off today and, uh, we booted it. We, we, uh, good we move. Good move. It. You're yep, just like, what? Well, how can you try to start something now? No, nope, definitely not. So anyway, but Aubrey. Uh, that gets me to what I talked. To. Did you preach yesterday or did no, Kevin? Kevin preached okay. yesterday? Yeah. So I preached yesterday and kind of did a standalone, like uh, just kind of a beginning of the year. Here's what I want to talk about. And I talked about uh, kind of the roller coaster of life and talked about mm. this COVID time. Mm. I, in fact, used all the ice in our parking lot as kind of how life feels right now, right? Like Ooh, you're just good. Kinda... That was a good preaching metaphor there, Brian. <laughs> like, I, thought well about it. I thought about it as I was like barely walking across our parking <laughs> so lot true. in the morning. So true. Uh, but here's the question. Um, how I wanted to tackle this. What do you do in the low lows of life? Mm. Uh, here, here was the line I said. I said, and I obviously didn't make this up. I said, the only certainty in life is uncertainty. Mm. Uh, is this idea that there's going to be uncertainty and we're all feeling it again right now. Yep. We're feeling it again. And so I went to the passage uh, later on in the sermon where Jesus calls himself the firm foundation. He tells people to build their house on the rock and That's what that good. looks like. But uh, let's start with that first part. What do you tell people as they are just wrestling with the all all the COVID and everything else that's going on, making life feel so uncertain right now? Yeah, you know, some of the scripture that I, I've looked to this year and we've kind of pointed our people to this year are scriptures where, like um, in Genesis, there's a story about Abraham and it says something like, in the meanwhile, mm-hmm. God was at work. And there's there's something, a passage that I think I've talked about on the show before in Isaiah, where it says, nevertheless, those who are in distress mm-hmm. will experience no more gloom. Mm-hmm. And those, I think those phrases, meanwhile, nevertheless, at the same time, like remind us that even though our circumstances are gloomy or distressing or terrible or confusing or feel like they're going backwards, Meanwhile, nevertheless, God is at work. 
God is on the throne. God is sovereign. God is not surprised by any of this. And so truly, he is an anchor for these slippery, icy seasons that we're in. Yeah. Um, and so I, those are just those those small biblical words, honestly, are the ones that we've been kind of reminding our people of and honestly reminding our own hearts of That's like, right. okay, God is not, God's not surprised. God's not done. God is on the throne. God is at work. It, there is a meanwhile here and a behind the scenes thing that we can't see, um, but God can see. Oh, I like that. There's also, the, I, I talked yesterday about the story in Daniel 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, and the fiery furnace yeah. where King Nebuchadnezzar says, either bow down to this image or I'm throwing you in this fiery mm-hmm. furnace. And you're all, you know, if all, any of us were in their shoes, we'd be going, uh, that's, those are two bad choices. Right yeah, there. <laughs> right. And right. I never noticed this before, but, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say to the king, God can save us. But then the next line is, but if he doesn't. Even if, that's right. But yep. if he doesn't, then I'm still good. Like I'm yep. paraphrasing there. And and there's that idea of uh, if our theology doesn't have room for life is uncertain, mm-hmm. uh, things can be hard, but God is still present and God is still powerful. If it's all about, oh, if I follow God, then all my problems are going to go away. Then you're going to, you're not going to last. It's going to go Really poorly. And so Jesus says to build, he tells that parable about building your house on the rock versus yeah. building your house on the sand. Uh, let's, let's get down practically, Aubrey. What does it look like for somebody to build their house on the rock? How do we even begin to know that my life is built on the right thing? Well, I want to hear what you told your church. You t- you preach to me, Brian. I'll tell you, I'll tell you if you're right or not. <laughs> that, that touche. You can find it on our website. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, um, it wasn't the whole day. Like I ended talking about build your house on the rock. So I didn't necessarily unpack how to do that. But I, mm-hmm. I think it is this. If you look at your own life right now and say that my faith or my life cannot um, uh, cannot withstand the lows of that mm-hmm. roller coaster ride, then you know yeah. you've got a problem. If, yeah. if your money were to go away tomorrow yeah. and everything would crumble for you, if your health goes away tomorrow – and everything crumbles for you. If that one relationship breaks down tomorrow and therefore everything crumbles, then you know you've built your house on, on sand. You've yeah. built your house on things that won't stand. Yeah. Um, but if you can honestly look in the mirror and say, no matter what, like health, COVID, money, yeah. relationships, yeah. but I know God is here for me and I can anchor my life in him, then you know you, you're in the right spot. So, so that doesn't necessarily answer how to do it, but I think that's kind of a... Uh, a, a test to go, okay, like where gauge. is, yeah, yeah, where is my life at? What, how would you answer that question? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would, I think that's a really good gauge. And then if you kind of go, Ooh, wow, maybe I, my house is not built on the strongest foundation it needs to be. Then, then I think this is like a conversation about going back to some spiritual practices, turning mm-hmm. off the noise of the, uh, political pundits and the news and social media, because that obviously is shaky ground, ever shifting and constantly trying to own you. So take some time away, get back into the word of God, which is the strong foundation that we have so that we're beginning to hear from God. And then again, I, Brian, you and I have talked about this, but be a part of your Christian community, like Mm -hmm. be an active part, whether that's a small group, a community group, a house group, regularly attending service, like these basic tenets of the faith, meeting together with other Christians, 
reading the word, doing life together. That's how you begin. Like it's the, it's the small daily task yes. of building your life on the rock is what ultimately is a life built on the rock. And I, I think we sometimes um, ignore those things as if they're not important, but mm-hmm. every single one of those are tools for establishing that firm foundation of Christ. And then of course, asking the Lord for help, yes. like God, and God's going to be faithful to help you uh, put your, put your anchor in him. Absolutely. Well, uh, one of the things we want to do here on The Common Good is open up the Bible and try to encourage you because ultimately we want you to have your life built upon the rock, whether things are going great or things are going badly. And so uh, hopefully that's an encouragement to you. Coming up next, we're going to reflect on the life of Sidney Poitier and discuss his uh, groundbreaking life, why he's so important to know about and to be thankful for. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're always so glad that you're with us. Another uh, really, really famous actor, Sidney Poitier, I mean, he was 94 years old, but he was the first black black actor to win an Academy Award for Best right. Actor for his movie, Lilies of the Field. He passed away. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it is a crazy season of celebrities dying, which is <laughs> like yes. really, really sad. But, you know, Sidney Poitier, of course, was really influential in Hollywood, just right. being sort of the first black kind of star, uh, the first black like idol, um, one of the, you know, men who opened the doors for other black actors in the film industry. He died in his home on Thursday night in Los Angeles. And um, there was an incredible clip from him from 1968. It was a press conference. At the time, there were race riots happening in the country And uh, he was asked by some reporters about that. And his response was really, really like mic drop powerful. (laughs) And I wanted uh, to go ahead and take a listen to that. And then you and I talk about it. So let's go ahead and listen to Sidney Poitier. Why is it that you guys are hounds for bad news? Why is it that, uh, you know, it seems to me that at this moment, this day, you could ask me many questions about many positive and wonderful things that are happening in this country. But we gather here to pay court to sensationalism. We gather here to pay court to negativism. You guys have a job to do. Uh, I'm a relatively intelligent man. There are many aspects to my personality that you can explore, I think, uh, very uh, constructively. But you sit here and ask me such one-dimensional questions about a very tiny area of our lives. You ask me questions that fall continually within the negroness of my life. You ask me questions that pertain to the narrow scope of the summer riots. I am artist, man, American, contemporary. I am an awful lot of things, so I wish you would uh, pay me the respect due and not simply ask me about those things. Okay, so Brian, I you know, that response, kind of like, hey, could you ask me about something else? 
is really interesting to me in this day and age because I don't know that you could skirt the issue like that. I'm not saying he skirted the issue. I think he put it in a proper place, really. Right. But I don't know that that could happen in 2021. Yeah. What do you What do you think about that? I found his answer so powerful because you also have to remember, obviously you and I weren't alive at the time, but right. from what you've read or been told about what the environment was like mm-hmm. back then, um, first for an African-American actor, even of his fame to be kind of lecturing the media was a, um, uh, was a big deal. That would have yeah. been a big deal. Uh, I love what he said, this idea of, um, you know, you guys just want to kind of put me in a box and say, just comment on this. And right. uh, that we see that in race often, but we also see that in gender. We see that uh, by your profession or whatever it is that you do. Like, no, we want you to stay in your lane here and only speak to this. And you're like, well, no, I, I want to speak to more stuff than that. I, I'm a more complex. Like, I think there's something in what he said there to realize the complexity of everybody around us out there. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone's not like, you're a Republican, so you think only that way. Right. You're African American, so you believe only this. You're, uh, you have a lot of money, so you must be like this. Like we do that all the time with people, and, and I think him saying this in 1968 is just a powerful thing to say. No, don't put me in this box. Like I yeah. have a lot of beliefs. I have a lot of things I believe strongly about. There are a lot of things that make up who I am. I, I've never heard this quote before. I thought that was great. Yeah, I, 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 he, he was obviously a very strong man, and yeah. I, you know, I think there are some, there are some beautiful things about his career. Like we said, that he opened the doors. There's some sad things too. NewYorkTimes.com has an article about him, and they, they basically said he made very clear choices about the roles he picked in films because mm. he said he would love to play villains or deal with different images of, and this is his language, quote, Negro life Mm. that would be more dimensional. But he said, I'm not going to do that at this stage of the game because he needed to be able to um, present a really sort of strong and quote unquote good picture to the world of an African-American man. And that's a lot of pressure for him, certainly Mm -hmm. as like Mm -hmm. a somebody who paved the way for other people. Interestingly, too, he was one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. He was a tox, top box office draw, but because of racial squeamishness at the time, he was never cast as a romantic lead despite his good looks. Um, mm. I think there was one movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where he actually did play a romantic lead, but most of his films he wasn't. But I mean, he was an incredible actor, obviously kind of breaking through breaking through stereotypes, breaking through taboos and and doing a lot in Hollywood at a day and age when a lot of black men and women right. just weren't or they were like put in very racist roles, frankly. And and so it is fascinating to me that when asked about the race riots, he's like, look, I am an artist. I am putting good things into the world. Could you ask me about something else? And mm-hmm. I, in, I think... Again, in this day and age, I don't think an actor would respond that way. But I think in his own way, in fact, I mean, I shouldn't say I think you can tell in his own way that was him fighting back against racism because mm-hmm. he didn't want to be put in a box. Right. Just asking. Just ask me about the black things or just yeah, ask. Me about this. And, yeah. And you can also tell uh, when somebody passes away, you could tell. Um, the importance, uh, the gravity of what they did by what people say. Some mm. of the most um, 
famous uh, African-American actors and actresses, what the, some of the things they said, I would encourage people to go read what Denzel Washington said uh, upon the death of Sidney Poitier Mm. and just the effect that the kind of the groundbreaking effect, right? Like Mm. you can look back on life and you could go, what did I accomplish? But you can also say, what did I accomplish for other people? For the next generation. Right. And yeah. it is obvious that the life that he lived and the, the choices he made and the, the stuff that he did that broke new ground uh, certainly uh, paved a way for other actors and actresses, African-American actors and actresses coming after him mm-hmm. to be able to do things that apart from him, they probably would not have been able to do. That's so true. Isn't isn't that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the truth? So like what what a legacy for him to to leave. I think the other point from his answer was really interesting, especially in this day and age when he was like, you're I can't I can't remember the exact quote, but you are. All you care about is sensationalism and right. bad news. And why don't you think about good things? And I feel like, I mean, if that's not a prophetic word for to this day and age, right. I don't, I really don't know what is like just to think that newscasters or, or press, even then that's what they were, you know, purporting constantly was just bad news or like gossip or whatever. And that seems so true today. Right. And here's a guy kind of calling them out for that. Look, can you do a better job at your job? Like there are wonderful, beautiful things in this world. Let's talk about those things instead of all of the negative things, just because you know that sells the news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I thought that was very like ahead of its time as well. It was powerful. It was powerful. We all know if it bleeds, it leads, right? Like that's kind of yeah. the way the news business yeah. works. Uh, but he's saying, hey, let's try to dig deeper. Let's try to have uh, – Here's what here's what <clears throat> the media doesn't do well is nuance. And let's try to mm. deal in nuance that not everybody can be put into categories. Yeah. Not everybody can be told exactly what to believe or to think. And I do think you're right. I think it was important in 1968. But man, is it really important in 2022? Yeah, such such a good word for us now. Well, when we return, our friend David French is asking a really important question. Brian is a nation full of Christians, a Christian nation. We're going to talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad that you're with us today. Brian, one of the things that you and I talk about on this show quite a bit is the concept of Christian nationalism. And part of the reason we do that is because we really believe here at the Common good in uh, tearing down the echo chambers that exist. We want to be a show where we take a topic like Christian nationalism that has very different points of view from very different sides and think through it in a way that's uh, nuanced and perhaps different. We want to present to you different sides of, of different arguments. We bring people on the show that we know you disagree with and those who you agree with. And we bring people on the show we agree with and disagree with. And um, again, all of that is because we are passionate about Christians being able to have civil discourse in this day and age around topics that can often be so divisive and so hateful. And one of the people that we love to have on our show is a guy named David French, but we know that he can be a polarizing figure. Brian yes. and I were just talking off air about how we're super fans. Like we consider him like a best friend of the show. But there's a lot of people out here who don't like David mm-hmm. French, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And um, but again, that's important for us to learn how to when we disagree, how to talk about people and, and topics with nuance. OK, so that's a long way of introducing a topic that David French wrote about recently that I know is going to bring up some 
agreement and some disagreement. And mm-hmm. the question he's asking really is, is our nation a Christian nation? And he says, we cannot equate Christian power with Christian justice. Mm. So Brian, before we even dive into what David French says, let me just ask you, I guess, two questions. One, how would you define a Christian nation? Two, is America a Christian nation? Yeah. And David goes to great lengths to try to define what a Christian Christian nation is, because I hadn't really thought about it in the terms he put. Uh, are we a Christian nation or a nation of Christians? I was like, well, yeah. that feels just kind of semantics, but actually it's a, it's a very important difference. A Christian nation uh, is not just, he says one thing where we obviously fail in being a Christian nation, but it's not the only thing is a Christian nation would tend to have an established Christian church as in like, this is the church of America. This is the church of England, right? Like there is an established Christian church. And he says our constitution explicitly rejects any formal religious establishment. So that's important. But then beyond that, he says, I'd argue that a nation's religious character uh, is defined by its interaction between the individual faith of the citizens and the institutional expression of the nation's values. Basically, uh, a functioning Christian nation is going to have a robust private practice of faith with a government that's consistent and committed to basic elements of justice and mercy that you find in Christendom. And so to put it another way, you'd be able to look at the country Mm. and say, not only do most of the individuals embody, uh, in this case, to call ourselves a Christian nation, uh, the individuals embody the the values and the beliefs of the Christian faith. But also we as a nation, our laws, our... um, what we, what, the way we treat people, the, what basically our policies, that's would be the word I would use. Our policies are guided, uh, by Christian principles at all times. And that's where it gets differentiated. You just have a lot of Christians. Yeah. But you're a nation that doesn't have an organized religion kind of guiding it. Or is our nation Christian? Like, is it founded mm-hmm. and therefore still guided? Uh, by the words of scripture. And he's arguing that we are not a Christian nation, uh, yeah. that we are a nation made up of a lot of Christians. And then he goes in to say why why that's an important distinction. It's interesting too. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here reading this article and another things that he's, he's talking about Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a famous quote from from Lincoln talking about the union and the Confederacy. And he says, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. David French goes on to say that was most dramatically true in the civil war, but of course it's been true in countless conflicts before and since. And it feels like in this day and age, that is so true. Republicans and Democrats hate each other with increasing ferocity, Mm. David French says. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, that is an interesting a litmus test, I suppose, if we are so hateful toward the other, and yet both of us are kind of calling ourselves a Christian nation mm-hmm. when we're supposed, like Jesus's own words, that we're defined by our love. It doesn't mean we're defined by agreeing on all the same things, but we're defined by our love. What does that say about our nation? Is it is it a Christian nation? Mm-hmm. And um, how do we get better? I feel like I don't necessarily have the answer for that, but um, Brian, I mean, do you think there's some truth in that, that we could look at our nation right now and really sincerely ask that question? Are we actually a Christian nation? Oh, absolutely. And I think you and I, if we're laying our cards on the table, would say that 
we are not a Christian nation, nor should we necessarily be. Um, mm. that, that our constitution speaks very clearly about, um, you know, the separation of, of church and state and what that looks like. I think it's bad for the church for yeah. us to be a Christian. It's not just bad for the country. It's bad for the church. But at the same time, we want to be a nation made up of people in an ideal world, uh, who are living out what we think is the best way to live, and that's following the words and the, the commands and, and the guidance of Jesus. Saying, right. But but then you have to say, okay, well, what are those things? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, wow. He says, there, he says a lot of really difficult things about power and yep. about um, priority of people that we have to really think through. Like, do we want to be a nation that lives like that? Do I want to be an individual who lives like that? It's one thing for the sake of of staying on top for me to throw things out there. Well, we're a Christian nation built upon Christian principles. Okay, well, let's keep teasing that out. What will that mean going forward to be built upon Christian principles as a yeah. nation? Because yeah. if you want to do that, I'm willing to have that conversation because it's that's a really complex conversation. But, Aubrey, it's also complex to say, what's it mean for me to be call myself a Christian and to yeah. live that out, uh, you know? There's an upside downness to following mm, Jesus. That's good. And, and I would argue that there's no nation out there that's actually trying to embody the upside downness of Jesus's kingdom. That's why. Yeah, there's kingdom, no nation that's like, no. yes, I want to die constantly to myself and for other people. That's no. <laughs> so true. But, but to right. say that we are hopefully made up of a lot of people who are living that way, I would say amen to that. We want yeah. lots of Christians in our nation, that doesn't necessarily mean that we want a Christian nation. Uh, mm. Because w- as we've seen through history, when the nation state and the church get get really entwined together, it's never good uh, yeah. for the church. And so I think we want to say, okay, how can we as Christians influence how we, how we are as a country? How can we influence policies? How can we be a part of government without saying necessarily that the Bible is now going to be the guiding principle over the Constitution for mm. the nation? And some mm. people are probably mad that I say that. I just think right. you just got to be careful because if, if we were a majority Muslim state, would you want the Quran to be above would, the Constitution? You definitely would not. Yeah. Would you want, if we were, a, if we were a majority secular, uh, atheist, would you want, you know, the writings of Darwin or something to be yeah. above? And so we just have to be careful how we talk about it. I want as many Christians in our nation as possible. Uh, I, that doesn't mean I want us to be a Christian nation. Yeah, that's, that's good. And let me just end with this quote from David French, because I think it's, I think it's really powerful and kind of the point of his article. He says, what conservative evangelicals are losing today, and the word losing, losing is in quotes there isn't so much liberty as power. Christians of all theological stripes enjoy more religious freedom now in this nation than virtually any group of any believers anywhere. Yet even so, it's uncomfortable to lose power. So I think that's probably the lens that we all need to look at ourselves with. And again, you can read this article over at the French press. A nation of Christians is not necessarily Christian nation is what it's called. Are we afraid of losing our power? Or are we afraid of losing justice? And which one is actually the biblical one that we need to be working towards? Mm-hmm. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about the Sabbath, but we're going to rethink it a little bit. Look at it through a different lens. That'll be a good conversation when we come back. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs> 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. It is the end of the show. And as we like to remind you at the end of every show, we love to bring you something encouraging, challenging, or inspiring. And Brian, you and I have talked about the concept of Sabbath on the mm-hmm. show quite a bit. It's a new year. It's probably start uh, time to start thinking about Sabbath again. I was actually over at RelevantMagazine.com, and uh, the writer there, a guy named Joshua Garenflo, was talking about Sabbath in sort of a different way. And so, okay, before we dive into this article, define Sabbath and talk about why Sabbath matters for our listeners. Yeah, Sabbath is essentially the the practice of taking a break. It is this idea in the Bible that, uh, you know, there'd be a day set apart where there'd be no work uh, and it got really crazy, right? We read that in the New Testament. But the idea is Sabbath is a gift to us from God. It's not a burden. Sabbath is a gift that says that just as God himself rested on the seventh day, uh, so we need to rest one out of seven days, basically, that says, I'm going to recharge. I'm going to connect with my mm-hmm. Heavenly Father. I'm going to connect to those things that are important. And it's a way of saying, I am not defined by what I do. I don't have to run, run, run more and just keep going. But that instead, uh, you know what, I'm defined by who I am, who God says that I am, and therefore I can rest. So it's this idea of unplugging. It's yeah, this idea right. of unplugging and not just unplugging for the sake of unplugging, but also then plugging into that which revitalizes us, mm. that which is important so that we can then get back to our job and we can get back. So that's kind of the idea of Sabbath. I miss anything there? No, I think that's really good. And I think it's that um, unplugging and plugging into something that revitalizes your soul. That's the piece that sometimes we miss. Because I know, like, I I will say, I think Sabbath is probably like one of the Ten Commandments that we just totally disobey. Like, we're like, who? It doesn't matter. Like, we don't need to rest. Like, that it doesn't hurt anybody not to rest. So we really don't take it seriously. But it's interesting. This uh, article that I mentioned, the author says that the Hebrew word for rest is a word menuha. And here's what he says. This this concept carries with it the idea of harmony, peace, and delight. Instead of separating himself from the world, God reveled in it. He couldn't take his eyes off of it. He delighted, celebrated, enjoyed. Manuha is the crown of God's creative act. Mm. And so I think for me, like sometimes I have thought about Sabbath in the past as just like you don't do anything. That's right. <laughs> right? You unplug and you do nothing. But this author is suggesting something else, something that you, uh, you know, initiated as well when you talked about like refilling your soul. You unplug in order to actually delight in your family, delight in God's word, delight in creativity, delight in passions. Like you get to actually enjoy the things you love. That's a beautiful part of Sabbath. That's what God did. Enjoy this creation he had made. And so this is so interesting. This this author talks about what Sabbath actually means. It's a day to celebrate the the things that bring you joy. And he says, maybe you curl up in a favorite nook with a neglected book. Maybe you uh, have a pot of tea. Maybe you do some painting, building a sailboat, scrapbooking. Mm. You do those things with your eyes open to God who desires it for you. And then he says, with thanks dancing on your lips as you do. The other thing he says is that Sabbath is a communal practice. And so this is something to do with your whole household or your Christian friends. Like you don't have to just be all by yourself when you're Sabbathing either. So I think these are kind of different 
ways to think about Sabbath. Mm. Um, Brian, I know you and I have talked about on the show that we don't necessarily do Sabbath ritualistically, but I think you and I both really value times of Sabbath rest. How do you and your family kind of practice Sabbath when you do? Yeah, well, let me go backwards here. There was a time when I remember when Madeline, she's our oldest, she's now 18, when Madeline was probably... Uh, she was young, so we might not have even had a second kid yet at this point. I remember I preached a sermon uh, at my old church. I was kind of the fill-in preacher, right? Every now and then, I preached a sermon on Sabbath, like that's where I was in the series, and I preached it. And I remember doing a lot of reading this and that, and I got really convicted by it. And for I would say the next couple months to a year, I got really kind of rigid about it. Mm. Like on this, it, it was Mondays for me back then. And on this Monday, I'm not going to look at my computer. I'm not going to do, I don't even think we had phones back then, but like my, yeah. it's all going to be about my, my wife and my daughter at that point. Uh, and I'm going to read, I'm going to take an hour to just go read. And I remember it being really something I started looking forward to. Wow. Interesting. And something that I stopped doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I think that's interesting. Talk to us about why you stopped. It, you get out of rhythm for one. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, I think I was trying to do it on my own. Although I remember my wife loved those days because it would be all about our family. Uh, Aubrey, we just get into the rat race of thinking we're so important that we can't unplug. I mean, you and I right now, you know what? I'm a pastor who leads a church and I do a daily radio show. So if you ask me, what's the day that I could completely unplug there's you not one. Go, I don't see a yeah. day. I don't. Yeah. It's hard because then yeah. Saturdays, my kids have stuff and all this yeah. stuff. And so I do think you bring up an interesting point. Like what are, how can we build in Sabbath times? How yeah. can we build in the practice for uh, an evening, an afternoon? Yeah, that's good. Uh, a, uh, where I'm going to, and I think it has to start in our day and age now with putting your phone away. Yep, absolutely. It, it has to start with just I'm gonna I'm gonna put my phone up here on the shelf. I'm going to uh, I'm not gonna look at it, and that's really hard. And then uh, from there, it becomes uh, the difficulty becomes with it just not being a license to be lazy. Like oh, I'm just mm-hmm. gonna lay on the couch for myself. No, yeah. what can you do that recharges? And so I yeah. think that's helpful. I, I understand the difficulty when you look at your calendar. When I look at my own calendar and go, where am I going to recharge mm-hmm. and rest? I'm like. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. My kids are out of the house. Whether yeah. the, and so it does become difficult. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. We, over our, our holiday break, there was a day that I was going to drive home from Oklahoma where my parents are, drive back here to Chicago with my boys. And it was a day that there was supposed to be a big snowstorm here in Chicago. So we actually decided to wait a day. And um, we ended up having an unexpected entire day to do nothing. And we watched the Harry Potter movies, we read, we ate food that we loved, we stayed in our pajamas. And, you know, it's it's only been a couple of weeks, but the boys and I just yesterday were like, that was our favorite day in a long time. Because unintentionally, that became a Sabbath day for us because we just enjoyed the things we love. There was no pressure to be anywhere, do anything it was, and it was this unexpected gift from God. And I, I do think perhaps it's time for us to get into a place uh, as church people where we're like planning it, right? Not in a way yeah. that's rigid or, or legalistic, but in a way that can delight our souls. So hopefully that gives you something 
to think about as you kick off your week this Monday evening. And thanks so much for joining us today. Brian and I will be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.